Thanks for downloading this podcast from RNIB Connect Radio. John Mitchell lost his sight due to a hereditary condition. He started to notice problems with his vision whilst out climbing. John is a keen artist and musician, and he joins me now to tell us his incredible life story. He also tells us why he's decided to leave a legacy to RNIB in his will. John, thank you so much for joining us on the line today. Now, can you start off by telling us a bit about how you started to lose your sight and when you noticed? Um, well, it's retinitis pigmentosa, so it has obviously been going over a fair bit of time before I really noticed it. But I was actually climbing out in the Himalayas back in 1986, and we came to the last day of the climb and started in the middle of the night and I found that everybody else was managing to go up this sort of snowy track quite happily with their head torches on and I kept on disappearing into the deep snow either side because I couldn't really see where I was going. I thought, well, this, this is a bit strange. There's obviously something wrong. So I uh, got my eyes checked when I came back. Now, I know you, you went to the opticians when you came back, like you said, and, and you got your eyes checked and they uh, decided to send you for further tests. Did you have any clue that this could be retinitis pigmentosa? Because I know your grandmother suffered from the same condition. That's right, yes. I mean, I sort of pretty much gathered by the time it was finally diagnosed that that's what the problem was. So it wasn't exactly the shock it could have been. Yes, but but still, I suppose at the age of 27, 28, you know, you're kind of in, in the thrust of your life and you're doing all the things that you're kind of wanting to do. And, you know, you've got a career that's in full swing, which we'll talk about in just a second. It must have been still a very trying time for you. That's right, yes. It's not exactly the best news you can get. I think sort of being prepared helped to a certain extent. It could obviously have been quite a shock if I hadn't been somewhat prepared for it. But yes, I mean, you you sort of sit down and think, well, you know, how is this going to affect me over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years or so? Yes, it's one of those things, John, I lost my sight when I was 19 and it happened in the space of two weeks and it was very unexpected. So I was kind of thrust into this world of darkness very, very quickly. And for me, it was a case of sink or swim. I was really thrown in at the deep end. But I think, you know, being 19 years old, I had a bit more resilience than I think I I would have had maybe if I was losing my sight now because, you know, you have that kind of stubbornness and belligerence and wanting to kind of prove people wrong. Did you find that people's attitudes towards you changed when you were registered partially sighted? Not too much. I mean, because I was sort of registered at the time that I stopped working, which was partly the reason I had to start working, a lot of the people sort of in my friends and all that changed at a similar time because obviously I lost all the work friends and I sort of got quite a few more new ones locally because I got more involved where I live. I mean, being about 25 miles outside of London where I work, you didn't really see many local people most of the time during the week. So you sort of got a new set of friends at the same time. They didn't really know me before, or at least when I had normal sight, as it were, and the people at work never really saw me once it had got that bad. Now, as I was saying, when I lost my sight, I was quite a stubborn teenager, and um, people kept telling me that I couldn't do things, John, which actually made me more determined 
to prove them wrong. And it wasn't through badness. It was more, I couldn't believe that people said that I wouldn't be able to do things just because my sight had gone. I was quite incredulous when people said that I would never achieve what I wanted to achieve. So that in a way was a good thing for me because it really did spur me on. A lot of people initially thought that I should go away and have a nervous breakdown and then, you know, pick myself up dust myself off and and then deal with it and I have to say I didn't really think about my sight loss or, or deal with it until maybe about four years later um, and that was due to an incident that happened that suddenly made me realize oh I'm not invincible so you know did you go through the kind of depression side of things did it really hit you hard at any point at all because it took me four years before I had my slump no, I mean, sort of fingers crossed, things seem to have gone fairly well. I mean, I've actually achieved, I think, far more that I've wanted to achieve since I lost my sight than beforehand because I haven't had work getting in the way, as it were. So, no, I mean, I, I, I sort of did more climbing around the world straight after I was registered blind. I did more music, which I managed to do because I had the time to do it, and eventually I got back into painting again, which is not the sort of thing you'd expect a blind person to uh, start doing. But um, I sort of got back into that after a, a few years as well, and I've now managed to uh, get fairly good at that uh, to the point I'm sort of having exhibitions and things like that. It's just incredible. And let's go on to talk about some of these achievements, John, because as you mentioned, you know, you have continued to climb mountains. You've climbed mountains uh, to raise money for RNIB as well, haven't you? Tell us a bit about that. That's right, yes. When I first stopped working, uh, I sort of had this grand idea that I would like to go back out to the Himalayas again. I'll give it one more shot and I might as well try and raise some money at the same time. So sort of the grand plan went ahead and I went out there in 1990, did another climb out there, which was successful. And sort of having come back, I thought, well, you know, I managed that one. I could probably do another couple, I should think. And the plan went ahead, along with help from the RNIB with publicity and things like that. And the original intention was to get as far as Everest. But for a, a couple of reasons, we never actually got that far in the end. In the meantime, I had managed to do another trip to the Himalayas, also climbing out in Alaska and the Andes, where I climbed Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere. And at the time, that was the unofficial world record for a blind climber. See, that's just incredible, John. It really, really is. It's just such a pity that that was never made official, that record. Why was that? It was very strange. I sort of had dealings with the good old Guinness Book of Records and they didn't really seem to, to be interested until I got to Everest, which I could never understand. I mean, I've always worked on the basis that, you know, if you're going to break a record, you, you know, you gradually get higher and higher or faster and faster depending on what it is you're doing. So I thought it was a bit strange. It was sort of never officially recognised. As far as I was concerned, yes, it was it and it was done, but they really didn't want to know until I'd done Everest, which, of course, unfortunately, I never got to do. Why was that, John? Oh, it was a combination. that The people that I was climbing with, there was another chap called Norman Croucher, who was a very famous uh, disabled mountaineer. He's a double amputee and we were both due to go on the same trip and the long and short of it was they didn't really want two disabled people to cope with when one could be quite enough so he got to go on the first one and I was sort of aiming to go on the next one and unfortunately I got a, a hernia that got in the way so by the time that had been 
sorted out and operated on, and I sort of had quite a bit of trouble with it afterwards. Um, in the end, I never actually got that far. It's such a pity. It really, really is. But, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. And whether you think that way or not, um, sometimes you just have to kind of pacify your mind with that kind of thing. Do you think you'll ever go on to climb Everest? Would you like to do it eventually? I don't think I would these days. I mean, there are now just so many people on there. I mean, there's now so many commercial trips. So you get lots of people up there who really, at the end of the day, don't know exactly what they're doing. So there's great queues for the summit if it's a, a good good weather window. Um, but I, I think these days I'm, I'm quite happy to be away from it. Well, honestly, I, I was just talking to my producer earlier and uh, she has actually climbed uh, Ben Nevis. But I was just saying the only way you get me to the top of a mountain is by helicopter. I might consider walking down so I have the utmost admiration for you because I am just the the laziest person I can't walk up a hill never mind a mountain so uh, congratulations <laughs> to you now talking about some more of your achievements John um, you mentioned your music how did your love of music come about you know what was it that inspired you to create your own studio at home well I've liked music as, as far back as I can remember, way, way back to the start of the Beatles back in the mid-60s. And I started to learn the guitar when I was ooh, about 13, something like that. And I, I've just always loved music ever since. So, uh, I mean, one of the things I really wanted to do back in my youth was sort of get into a band and, and do something like that, which I, I never got round to doing in the end. Uh, again, sort of work got in the way of it. And um, it, it just sort of started again. I, I'd been, I suppose, about a year after I'd stopped working, sort of got back into the guitar again, and then sort of met another couple of people, and we sort of started to do a few things together, and then we wanted to do a bit of recording, so I got at the time one of these little four-track cassette recorders, and did a bit on that, and then I wanted a bit more sophisticated, and went on to a 16-track tape recorder, and mixing desks, and it sort of went on from there, really. So I've now got my own 24-track setup at home with all, all my keyboards and guitars and all sorts of other things, and that sort of keeps me out of mischief. So you are very musically uh, talented then. It sounds like I used to play the guitar, John, and I used to go busking. But like you, I always wanted to be in a band, but never quite got there. So who knows? Maybe we could get together and start our own uh, band, oh, <laughs> raise, raise idea, some yeah. more money for R&IV. Yep. But uh, you were talking about work there. And um, obviously, you know, you had a, a fantastic job. You know, you were working in television. You were working for Ulster Television. Tell us a bit about that. It must have been quite it must have been really disappointing actually to have to give up a job that that you really love doing yes it was i mean it was sort of fairly hectic at times because I, I was working on the commercials side so when program schedules came out we'd work out what commercial breaks went into what programs and for how long and then nearer the time, making sure they were all filled up with the right commercials and ready to go. And obviously, quite a bit of the time, things would go wrong at the last minute and a commercial would have to be pulled or replaced. So you never knew quite what was going to happen from one day to the next. So you've got plenty of variety. It was sad to leave. I mean, the department that I was dealing with 
was having to move from London to Belfast. So I actually spent about four or five months in Belfast getting them all trained up over there to take over. And did they not have the assistive technology in those days that, that they do now that would have enabled you to, to stay on at work? Or had you just had enough at that point? Was there just too much to deal with in terms of trying to forge a new life for yourself? Well, it would have meant moving over to Belfast anyway, sort of living just outside London. That would have been a bit of a, a wrench at the time. I don't think they had quite the same sort of technology available. I mean, certainly the computers we were using, I mean, it was purely just, you know, green letters on a screen. There was no colour or anything like that then. I was actually around when we first started to use computers to deal with the uh, commercial side. The technology had, had moved on a little bit, but it was, you know, big mainframe computers. It, we hadn't quite got to the, the PCs and certainly hadn't got to things like um, emailing and internet or all that sort of thing by the time I left. Sure. I mean, when you consider how much technology has come on, I mean, it's come on leaps and bounds in the last 21 years that I've been blind. You know, I remember the first jaws i got the first laptop i got with the external synthesizer it was a juno and i had to use dos and it was you know it was very primitive in those days and yet it seemed all singing all dancing do you think if you had lost your sight now and you had been working you would have been able to stay on at your job provided it hadn't moved over to belfast obviously i i think it's, it's quite possible yes yes Yes, I mean, technology, as you say, has just moved on in, in leaps and bounds over the past few years. And I'm, I'm sure in the future it will be even easier. So tell me about when you first approached RNIB then and, and the kind of help and support that RNIB have given you. Because when I first lost my sight, I was living abroad. I was very discouraged by the blind organisations over there. And actually, I was terrified at, you know, just what was not an offer for me and how how little help there was for blind people at that time in this particular country. Now, I know things have come on leaps and bounds since then, but coming to Scotland to live here in the UK, I, I wanted to kind of shy away from any blind organisations. And it was actually RNIB that found me through a kind of series of coincidences and my goodness what a difference and how they have managed to to change my life and support me did you feel the same yes i mean where i used to work up in london was uh, baker street and at the time rnib were in great portland street which was literally 10 minutes walk down the road they were <laughs> very convenient as far as i was concerned then mainly i got involved with them after i stopped work again a lot during when I was doing the climbing because they were helping a lot on the publicity. And through that, I got involved with helping them out with fundraising events and things like that. And also in Surrey, we had a charity who were at the time called Surrey Voluntary Association for the Blind. Um, and they used a lot of the RNIB equipment. And they were literally, well, still are, just around the corner from me at home. I can get, you know, any RNIB equipment that I need through them. I mean, they're now called Sight for Surrey. They stock the RNIB equipment as well as, as other stuff. It's very easy to get hold of the kit I need. That's fantastic. And what kind of kit do you need these days? Um, not an awful lot, to be perfectly honest. Um, the bump-ons and high marks I find very useful, just for even um, things like uh, the latest synthesizers. 
the current trend is rather than having nice clear markings on all the little knobs, um, they just sort of have an indented line, which of course is very difficult to feel and see. So I sort of put high marks on all of those so I can see where my settings are. Um, obviously, long cane, I get through a fair fair number of tips during the year, so I'm often popping around to get a new one. Generally, it's sort of the, the smaller stuff at the moment that I tend to use. And of course, you are an artist as well. I mean, honestly, your list of achievements are, are never ending. And I know that you got involved with RNIB and the Legacy team um, with their calendars that they produce. That's now, right. tell us a bit about that and your artwork. How do you go about uh, painting when you can't see? Well, because I've got tunnel vision, I can see a little bit of the painting at a time. So you get used to working in small areas. And I try to avoid buildings if possible because they're straight lines and I'm not very good at them. <laughs> well, unless you're doing the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you might be all oh, right yes, then. Yes, that would be all right. <laughs> and, I mean, again, things like, you know, if you're painting a seascape and you obviously need the sea horizon to be level, Otherwise, it looks as if it's trying to drain out of the picture. So what I do is I measure up each side of the canvas and then put a piece of masking tape across so I know that it's level. Oh, yes. I think there's a lot of things when you lose your sight that, you know, you're able to kind of make little adaptations and things that just kind of suit you and help you out uh, personally. So that's wonderful. It really, really is. Now, we spoke there about RNIB and their legacy team. And obviously, you know, RNIB are always looking for people to help and support the charity in terms of legacies and it's so important that um, you know we get that message out there because there's so many people that are losing their sight or have lost their sight that do need help and support and it's obvious that the charities like RNIB are there to provide people with confidence and the help that they need. Tell us a bit about um, your legacy. You very kindly decided to leave a legacy to RNIB in your will. Why is that? I think it's important I mean, a lot of people aren't in sort of a similar situation to us where we're, we're carrying on with life quite happily and coping with our problems. Um, there are so many people that seem to be either stuck indoors or, or can't get out, don't have people that can help them to get out and about. So I think it's important that the help is there for them. And obviously the RNIB is the, the main charity for that in the UK. It is indeed. And, you know, thanks to people like you, people like myself and, you know, many other blind people are able to carry on with our lives and, and get that help and support. John, you're such a talented man. You really, really are. And it's been incredible <laughs> talking to you. It really has. Thank you so much for joining us here on RNIB Connect Radio today. And if anybody does want to see your work or what you're up to, do you have a website? I don't at the moment. It's one of those things I keep meaning to get round to, but I spend the time doing the music and the painting rather than the, than the website. So I will get round to it one day, I hope. Oh, but, you better. Uh, <laughs> but anybody who happens to be in the Leatherhead area, I exhibit with the Leatherhead Art Club uh, two or three times a year. I've actually got some going into an exhibition in a couple of weeks' time. They can see my stuff there. And I'm hoping to have another solo exhibition at the theatre again in a, in a couple of years. That would be absolutely amazing. It really would. Well, listen, we'll keep in touch with you, John, for sure, and find out about your progress with that. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll speak to you again here on RNIB Connect Radio. Lovely. Thank you very much.
downloads like these, visit rnibconnectradio.org.uk slash podcasts. <laughs>